Romans chapter 12. Take your copy of God's Word and meet me there in the 12th chapter of Paul's epistle to this Italian group of believers in Rome. While you're turning there, a few weeks ago, I told you as we began Romans 12 that if we turned our attention and our, our hearts and really focused in on what was said in the 12th chapter of Romans, it would radically change our church, and I believe that. But I also think it will dramatically impact the marriages in our church. It'll change the way we relate to our neighbors. It will focus the way we act to unbelievers. It will give us perspective in how we pray. This is an unmatched section of Scripture in both form and content. In fact, as I, be- I believe as I read this to you this morning, you're going to sense instantly a different kind, almost a different genre of exposition that the Apostle Paul lends this, this section of Romans to. We said over and over when we got to Romans 12, if you don't like being told what to do, this is going to be a challenge. Because fasten your seatbelts and listen as I read Romans 12, beginning at verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence. Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, Practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, and beloved, leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him, and if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's a mouthful, isn't it? Believing the gospel changes a person. The gospel changes a person's priorities. The gospel changes a believer's passions. The gospel changes a believer's decisions. The gospel changes a believer's life goals and financial goals and vocational and occupational goals. The gospel changes a believer's desires. But 
I think foremost, when you read the New Testament and you collate all of the commands and imperatives that the apostles put together for us, you will discern that after careful examination of the New Testament, that the gospel makes its greatest impact on relationships. In fact, you can easily and quickly measure how to assess a Christian's spiritual maturity, your own spiritual maturity, your own rate of growth, by how you, how someone acts or responds within the barriers and context of relationships. Now, there are three basic relationships that, that, that exist on this planet. Only three. First of all, there's one's relationship to God, and this passage addresses a relationship with God. Second, there's a relationship with other Christians, between Christians, and this passage addresses that. And thirdly, there is one's relationship with unbelievers, and this passage certainly has much to say about that. So we call it upward, inward, outward, relationship with God, relationship with believers in the church, relationship outward in evangelism with, with unbelievers. Now, if you're smart, and I know you are, you will quickly say, but what about my relationship with me? Don't I have a relationship with myself? When no one's around, am I not relating to myself and responding in my own little cocoon of existence? And my answer to that is not really. Because even your own internal inner workings are ultimately reflective of your relationship, my relationship with God. So we don't have a relationship within ourselves that doesn't exist apart from God's omniscient, omnipresent interaction with us. Even a believer's personal decisions that seem to make no impact on others have direct bearing. All of them have direct bearing and responsibility before God. Now, looking at this passage, we got to remember how it began. This is our memory verse for our church for this month. Back to verse 1, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, Paul says, present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. This sacrifice will be acceptable to God, that language of Old Testament sacrifice. Acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship or service of worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may show or prove, demonstrate what the will of God is, that which is Good and acceptable and perfect. Now, when you kind of back up from that, you see that we are to live holy and sacrificial lives that prove or demonstrate the will of God, the desires of God. And notice that the lives of those of us who've received mercy, that's the tagline in Romans 12, 1, of those who are Christians, those of us who have received mercy are marked by being different than the world, strategically, deliberately trying to be conformed to God and his word, not the world and its pressures. And the rest of Romans, the next five chapters from Romans 12 through Romans 16, those five chapters concentrate on what it means to be conformed to the image of Christ, what it means to not be conformed to the world and have a mind transformed to become like God. Think like God. Decide like God. Because we have the mind of Christ. Paul begins here with God's will for each believer to faithfully use our spiritual gifts. After verse 2, verses 3 to 8, he says, the first thing you need to know is we all are gifted by God 
and those gifts have been given to us to serve one another in the body for the healthy um, uh, existence of each other, for the health of our church. And we studied that in some detail. But beginning here in verse 9, there's a change. There's a, an interesting thing that happens. He widens the focus, as it were, to, to a broader list of instructions for how a Christian is to act and behave and respond in all relationships, not just how we serve each other with our giftedness in the body of Christ. We're going to look at this, uh, how do I say this gently? We're going to look at this passage for a few weeks. In fact, I'll read you a quote from one commentator in a minute who said, you really should devote one sermon to every one of these phrases. I don't think we're quite going to do that, but they're all worthy of that. And there are 25 of them, by the way. These impact all relationships. So let me tee it up for you, can I? Just take a deep breath and think about what this passage has for you. If you will honor and apply the admonitions in this passage before us that I just read, it will impact your family. The dinner table will change. How you interact will change. How you ride in the car will change. Your relationships will be deepened and more, more um, uh, enjoyable. They, they will be those that have conflict but are resolved much quickly, more quickly and, and better and responsibly. If we apply this passage, it will change the way you as kids respond to your parents, and we as parents respond to our children. It'll impact how you deal with your brothers and your sisters, your cousins. Listen, this might be, listen, this might be one of the most compact and dense and helpful admonitions and sections of the Bible for how to improve your marriage. If we apply the principles in this, our marriages will be radically different. Our spouses would be so encouraged. We would enjoy our marriages so much more. I think it's one of the most compressed sections in the Bible for the increasing of the health of our marriages. It'll help your understanding of your relationships here in the body of Christ at Mission Road with your church. It will help relate to people at work. It will help you in your neighborhood with friends. It will even direct and give attention to how you respond to enemies of the gospel and enemies of you. Now, before we jump into this really dense, rich section of Romans, I think it's important that we look at what we're dealing with. This is a different kind of passage than certainly we've encountered in Romans. It's certainly a different kind of passage than I've preached since being here at Mission Road. I'm not sure if I've ever preached a passage quite like this. Did you notice anything unusual about the text when I read it? It's, it, it's a list. It's, it's a long list. In fact, it's a long list that includes 25 phrases, 25 items. Most are identifiable that, um, as imperatives or commands. We'll get into the grammar later. Some are commands. They tell you what to do. They're imperatives. Some are participial phrases that function like, the com like a command. That's, that's uh, what happens uh, in the Greek language. And even this first one acts like a, a command or an imperative, even though the grammar doesn't exactly say so. But they all function as telling us what to do. These are 25 injunctions, 25 commands, 25 imperatives, 25 encouragements. 
Now, the first thing we have to do when we look at this list is say, what's in it? I've been studying this passage for several weeks now. I've talked to the staff about it. I've talked to some of the elders about it. I've talked to my wife and my kids about it. I, I, have, I have banged my head on this text so much trying to make heads and tails of it, trying to make some internally logical connections between these, the things in this list. And I want to tell you, it's been pretty near impossible I want to say, well, here's a list for believers and for unbelievers and for the church and for your family. It, it's not like that. They're all scrambled up and mixed together. It's complex and simple at the same time. I brought along some friends to tell you about this text with me so that you would know that there's some credibility in my assessment of it. Tom Schreiner, the great Greek scholar at Southern Seminary, said, The section is quite loosely structured, and one must be careful about imposing any definite schema on the text. Ken Boa says, The final uh, 13 verses of this chapter defy outlining. James May says, The unit provides its, uh, its instead in syntax and in content, a clear example of traditional catechial, you know, there's a catechism, admonition. Short injunctions arranged with no obvious pattern. At best, in small groupings linked by key terms or catchwords. Luke Johnson writes, the sentences are short and disconnected. There is little continuity of thought that can be discerned. Another Greek scholar, Robert Mount, says, Nowhere else in Paul's writings do we find a more concise collection of ethical injunctions. He goes on to say uh, that each of the exhortations could serve as a text, quote, for a full-length sermon in itself. What they deal with are basic to Christian living, end quote. So how should we look at this text? Well, if you examine the parts closely, you can see that they all do relate in this way. They're all about relationships with God, with believers, or with unbelievers. Another way to understand these injunctions is what Tom Schreiner calls sketches in some of the contours of the will of God. We're to prove what the will of God is. You want to know what God's will is for your life? Here's 25 suggestions. It's a blueprint for a believer's response to God's mercy in the gospel. And how that response serves others. This is life shaped by the gospel. These are relationships controlled by the gospel. And there are 25 phrases. Listen to the words of the great Lutheran scholar R.C.H. Linsky. In the early church, affliction was expected as a, ma as a matter of course. In other words, if you're a Christian, you expected things to go kind of foul for you. The scars it left were considered the medals of honor, bestowed by the Lord's own hands. Now, most Christians, now, most Christians expect to get through life unscathed, without even a bruise, and they cry out if they're buffeted, even a little, as though a great wrong were being done them instead of experiencing something that is altogether normal. So, many even try to avoid the world's hate and to win its favor by shaping doctrine, practice, and conduct so as to avoid offending the world. 
So many Christians resemble the children of this world to such extent that they cannot be distinguished from them, end quote. This list, if we apply it, will distinguish us from the world. This will mark us as different. If we apply this list, we will be easily distinguished from an unbelieving world. Now, before we jump in, I want you to notice how the passage opens and how the passage closes. Look at verse 9. Let love be unhypocritical, without hypocrisy. Look at the end. Verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I think in between there is how we live and conquer life by loving others in such a way that our lives are marked by selfless sacrifice, which is exactly what Paul told us in Romans 12, 1, we're to pursue. Now, here's how we're going to approach this list. I want to give you a little insight. In the next few weeks, we're going to march through them point by point. I don't think we're going to be in a hurry to get through it. And I believe that if we really apply ourselves to this, things will begin to radically change at Mission Road and things will begin to dramatically change and improve at home and marriages will suddenly have the fresh smell of grace. Parents and kids will begin getting along better than ever before if we will just simply apply these admonitions. Typically, I have a proposition with an outline, and I'm going to, over the next few weeks as well, and this is it, ready? 25 applications of the gospel for relationships. I tried so hard to have maybe a section of four and a section of seven and, and break it down. There's, there's 25. It's more points than I've ever had in a sermon, ever, in my life. But I, th- I think there's 25 here, and we have, do you know why I have 25? There you go. We're just going to march through them. I don't know how many we're going to get to. Um, I think we're only going to get through one today, but that's no, <laughs> no precedence for the coming uh, weeks. But this is just rich. We're not in a hurry. Let's stop and enjoy these roses while we're here. 25 applications of the gospel for relationships, the longest outline I've ever had in my homiletical career. Number one, love sincerely. That's probably as far as we're going to get today. Love sincerely. We may sneak into number two and three, but let's just see. Love sincerely. The first phrase in verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy. The New American American Standard translates this. Now, the original language is interesting, and I'm going to have to take you into some Greek language during this study because the English tries to expand what is very short and pithy in the Greek. This is how you would translate this in the Greek. There's no finite verb. It says literally, the love not hypocritical. What love? The love. may sound a bit strange, but the idea is to command. The love that a Christian is to have, the love that's supposed to mark your life, is to be without hypocrisy, unhypocritical. Paul goes back to his favorite word for love. what's, What's the favorite Pauline word for love? Greek word. You know it. Agape. We know that word, agape. It's the love that looks and seeks 
to understand. It's a love that wants to comprehend, and according to that comprehension, to purpose to do all it can for the object loved. Kent Hughes describes it as a godlike love that loves regardless of the circumstances, a deliberate love that decides it will keep loving even if it is rebuffed. 1 Timothy 1.5, Paul said, the goal of our instruction is, you know what he says? Love. The goal of Christian instruction is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Love plays the most preeminent part of the commands given by the Apostle Paul. And he actually says it's the most preeminent command. If you can get love down, everything else will flow. It's the first domino of Christian maturity. Now, we, we can't... We can't escape the fact that there's a connection made here that you ought to see in 1 Corinthians. It's very important to see this because it follows a sequence that Paul has specifically dialed in for us to understand and apply. 1 Corinthians 12, he talks about spiritual what? Gifts, right? Right after 1 Corinthians 12 is 1 Corinthians, watch this, wait for it, 13. I went to seminary. I know that. 1 Corinthians 12 is about spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 13, you all know, explains the priority of what? Love. Paul just talked about the sacrifice of Christ that leads to our sacrifice in our own life, that leads to our, our living uh, unique lives outside the world, close to God, transforming our mind that will produce faithfulness and spiritual gifts, and what's the first thing he says is important after you understand, understand spiritual gifts? Right here. Love. Spiritual gifts, love. Spiritual gifts, love. It's parallel that's important to understand. In fact, Paul calls 1 Corinthians 13, we'll look at this in a minute, the greatest virtue. He calls love the greatest virtue. Now, before we dial in, what is this love? What is agape love? I think we can sometimes over uh, analyze it, over-define it, and, and we, we, we almost take the frog apart in dissecting it, and we kill it. It's simply caring for others more than yourself. Love is caring for others more than yourself. It means caring for them in specifically discernible ways. It's lathered in self-denial and self-sacrifice. If love is the greatest virtue, you would expect to see the greatest virtue demonstrated by, demonstrated by the greatest person, God, right? John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he, what? Gave. And he didn't give just some gift. He gave the most precious gift he owned. In other words, there was nothing too precious for God not to sacrifice because of his love and included his only begotten son. But there's something in the love that we're supposed to have love. And then he qualifies it without hypocrisy. 
Sincerely, in other words. Authentically. Now again, we need to turn to the Greek language, and this will be something that I think you'll find fascinating. The term for hypocrisy was not originally a term that meant to be two-faced or to act in a way that wasn't genuine. That was the implication. The term hypocrisy is actually used of a hypocrite. Now, a hypocrite, we look at as something that's really bad and, and nasty and, and, and not virtuous at all. But the original hypocrite, that was the name of an actor. An actor was a hypocrite, one who wore a mask when they were on stage on the show, different than who they were off stage. They were two different people. Later, that term came to mean two-faced in a colloquial sense, hypocritical as you and I understand it today. This is not difficult to understand. Paul is first saying that real, genuine, authentic Christian love, get this, does not pretend. It's not two-faced. It's authentic. It's genuine. Hypocritical love is happy to express love, talk about love, act loving even show some demonstrations of it, but not to carry the love and the burden for the person loved beyond that moment. Look down to verse 10 for a moment. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. He's going to come back to that. If you look over at chapter 13, verse 8, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. What? If you've loved your neighbor, you fulfilled the law? Imagine that. You want a shorthand, a, a, a shortcut to sanctification? Love your neighbor. You've fulfilled the whole law if you've done that. In order to understand this, hold your finger here and turn back to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22. Jesus is going tango with the Pharisees again in this chapter. They're trying to trap him. They're trying to trick him. They're trying to expose him. They're trying to embarrass him. They're trying to get him to say something that they can trap him with. So, verse 34, Matthew 22. One of the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees. And they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question. Now, when you hear lawyer, that's not like an attorney we have today. A lawyer was a, an expert in the Jewish law. It was a theologian. You can translate that, a theologian. One theologian asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, just the condescending nature, the nature of the teacher. He didn't look at him as a teacher. He was trying to trick him. Teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? Now, what he was expecting is whatever Jesus would say, he could come up with certainly another command. He said, yeah, but what about that? Jesus says to him, verse 37, here's the, here's the answer. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. This is the great and foremost commandment. Now, before the, the, the theologian, the lawyer, could think about how he would respond, Jesus says, and number two, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these 
two commandments depend. The whole law and the prophets. You know what Jesus was saying? Every single verse in the Old Testament, in the law, can be broken down to, to understand that it's informing us on how to love God better or how to love others better. Everything. Everything there is for that. And he says, if you get that down, you can fulfill the whole law. That's exactly what Paul says. If you love, you understand how to apply the law. Loving God and loving others. 1 Peter 1.22, since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from, your, from the heart. 1 Peter 4.8, above all, fervently keep fervent in your love for one another because love, love covers a multitude of sins. You want to see how relationships are improved? Love each other and watch that love cover, dismiss, forgive sin and hold no record of wrongs. 1 John 3, 18. Little children, let us not love with word or tongue, that's the hypocrite, but in deed and in truth. The word truth there has to do with pure, not hypocritically. So how do we know if our love is hypocritical, or how do we love, know if our love is sincere, it's authentic, it's genuine, it's God-wrought, well, you know exactly how to tell. And so let's go look at that test, can we? 1 Corinthians chapter what? 13. Flip over there for a moment. 1 Corinthians 13. This is typically a, a passage read at weddings, and certainly husbands and wives should love each other this way, but this is not so much about marriage as it is about Christian relationships. Paul's talking about life in the church. Remember 1 Corinthians 12, he talks about spiritual gifts. And then he comes... To chapter 13. Just listen to this context. Let's define this love. Find out what it means to have love that's unhypocritical. He says, if I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but I do not have love, if I am the most gifted person, if everyone looks at me and says, wow, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, know all the mysteries, all knowledge. If I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but I do not have love, guess what I am? I'm a zero. I'm nothing. Huh. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. And by this point, they're saying, well, then what, what is it? What does love look like? He says, glad you asked, because love is patient. You know what love? Love has a long ability of non-retaliation, which Paul will get to later in Romans 12, non-retaliation. It's patient. It doesn't get freaked out, short-circuited. Love is kind. You know what this word kind means? Big Greek definition. Ready? Nice. Love's kind. I mean, it's not hard to define, is it? Kind and nice. Mean people are not lovers. It's not jealous. Jealousy always wants the glory or the possession of someone else 
Love says, no, you can have everything at my expense outside of the sinful acquisition. Wow. Love doesn't brag. Is it not in the heart of each one of us to, to brag, to boast, to say, look at me, to almost not be willing to let someone finish a story about something they've done or enjoyed or experienced without just waiting to tell them about our experience, what we've enjoyed and what we've accomplished. It doesn't brag. The cousin of that, it's not arrogant. Bragging is in the response to something, a conversation. Arrogant just means the way you carry yourself. It doesn't walk around saying, I'm important. It walks around saying, others are more important. Huh. Love doesn't act. It's a strange way they translate this world. Unbecomingly. It literally means undignified. Love knows the appropriate way to act in any given situation because acting inappropriately puts others at a direct disadvantage for receiving love and for, they, they just get weirded out by us. It doesn't seek its own. It says here it's not provoked, literally it's unprovocable. You keep smiling in the face of being provoked. Being irritated. The fuse never hits the bomb. This next one, it doesn't take into account a wrong supper. Literally, it doesn't do little one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five, little chicken scratches. It doesn't keep a record of what you've done. Doesn't take account a wrong suffered. So quick to forgive. Doesn't hold a grudge. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness. Remember that when we come back next week, because that's exactly what Paul's going to tell us next. You love unhypocritically by not clinging to evil, but clinging to good. Love doesn't sit in front of a television and watch sin and become entertained with it with someone else in the room. It doesn't love God. That doesn't love someone else. It rejoices with the truth. It's so thankful for righteousness and truth. That could even be translated capital T for God's word. Then that catch all verse in verse 7. It bears all things. There's nothing that says you've crossed the line. It, there's never a line to be crossed. You hear that? No one ever does too much. No one ever gets to the point where you say, I've had it. True love never says, I've had it. It believes all things. That doesn't mean it believes wrong things. It just believes the best things. It's qualified by it hopes all things and endures all things. In other words, love looks at the best possibility and shepherds toward that possibility Love doesn't hang on to what you've done wrong and remind you of it. It desires great things for the person loved, hopes all things, endures all things. There's no end. Like I said, the fuse never hits the bomb with true love. 
And then this, this final thing, love never fails. It never fails. How would you evaluate the way you love your spouse, your kids, your parents, your friends, your enemies by this list? It involves sacrifice, care, actions, follow-up, expressions, true expressions of love. I mean, are we willing to ask how, what's our grade on the people that we're supposed to be loving? What, how do we grade ourselves? Are you willing to take your love for others before the Lord and ask him, how does it look? Are we pretending to love? We act like we care, but then we just say, I want to be somewhere else with someone else right now. By the way, this expression of love, that'll show up in the rest of the list that we have here in Romans 12. You'll quickly um, know whether or not you love by what you avoid and what you pursue. Now we're back to Romans chapter 12. Remember, love rejoices in righteousness. It doesn't rejoice in, in unrighteousness. We'll get to this next week, but look at the next two admonitions of these 25. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. How does that relate to how you love others? Well, just I don't think I need to explain it, but come next week and I will. How do we engage the people in our Christian circles? How do we care for others in our care groups? Do, do, do we love, genuinely love them? And listen, love is always most glorifying God when it's directed to people who are the most unlovable. Because that's the reflection of God loving you and me. Look, I don't want to stress this too much. Aaron didn't ask me to talk about this, but you know, with regard to small groups, care groups, those kind of things, people can change for different reasons, and there there are reasons to change for uh, that uh, we can talk about closeness or age group. Those are all fine, but if you're leaving a care group because you have trouble loving someone, the problem is not them; it's in your heart. How do we care and love for people in our age group, our Sunday school classes, the people here at church? Are we seeking to really love our spouse? I'm not talking about buying roses or keeping food in the pantry. I'm asking if there's a deliberate desire to care for our spouses and their well-being in such a way that they understand this is self-sacrificial. How about our friends? Do they know? Are you the one that they know I can call him or her at 3 a.m. if I really need them, and they're on my speed dial. That's love. They know you love them. We can't love. We will be pretenders unless we understand the gospel and how it's changed us, unless we understand who Jesus is, what he's done, his love for us in dying for our sins, his power in rising from the grave. Unless we believe that, we will not love like this. We, we cannot love like this. But here's what Paul's asking here. His love is to be unhypocritical. In other words, he's asking this, commanding this. Love sincerely, which means don't fall into the temptation 
of pretending that you love. It's to be unhypocritical. We're not acting. We genuinely care. One of the ways that I've seen failures in my own life with, with this comes down to one thing I want to encourage you to think about this week. True love follows up. It's easy to pretend in a moment. Not, not, I don't even think it's pretentious. It, we, we, we really genuinely care, but it's easy to walk away and not care outside of the conversation or an interaction with somebody. True love cares and follows up, which means it, it prays. We'll get to that later, devoting ourselves to prayer. Some people, by the way, think that all of the rest of these 24 other um, admonitions Paul gives are subsets of this first one, which is to love. And I'm not sure I see that grammatically, but theologically I understand how it could be the case. What would, what would our homes and our church, what would our work places be like? What would, what would the nature of our neighborhoods look like? What our care groups feel like if, if we learn how to love without hypocrisy. I'd love to see that, wouldn't you? Well, how does that work itself out? We're going to be looking at that in the coming weeks, but a little hint. It first of all starts with abhorring what is evil and clinging to what is good. This is the way we love God, and that will have impact on others. We'll look at probably just those two next week.